Welcome to America's most livable city Please ignore the invisibles with me See Pittsburgh, we built its economy But we still lead the nation in black poverty Welcome to America's most livable city Just ignore the invisibles with me And state your business Cause here, the place you live in Depends on your race and privilege Good afternoon, everybody. It's Dr. Cheryl Hall Russell, and it is Tuesday at two o'clock. So you know it is time for what Black Pittsburgh needs to know. I am joined by my colleagues, Jasiri X with Wanda Media, and with Dr. Jamil Bay. There you are. I thought you were hiding from me, and Dr. Jamil Bay <laughs> uh, with the Urban Kite Institute. We're kind of goofily excited about today's program on education. Yes. Um, you know, we had said to you that we're going to choose two or three topics that we know, you know, Black Pittsburgh really needs to be highly engaged in. And education is is definitely one of them. So we've got three uh, black and brown sisters coming on to talk about their work in the area. We want you to know ahead of time, this is for parents. It is for residents of all types. This is for educators. Those of y'all running from the school board, y'all want to may want to listen to this too. But it really is a, a program we hope that everybody uh, will tune into. So call y'all's peeps while uh, the three of us talk about our first fifteen and what's been going on since the last time we talked. What's new, Doctor Bay? Well, the rain is falling now, so you know I'm inside, but I'll be all right. Uh, what is it's new? probably eighty-two and raining, so you probably are good. So that means humid. See. Uh, we are, um, I said, I, I was looking, you know, a lot of the stuff in the news about that AstraZeneca vaccine and the publicity around that. And I was, you know, just looking at the numbers behind, you know, the blood clots and what they're talking about. And I, I'm, I'm trying to get to the next level of understanding of what's happening here and why AstraZeneca is being spotlighted when the numbers aren't saying that it should be. You know, we have this this intense scrutiny with media's attention, and this is this intense media scrutiny of everything that's happening related to any vaccine. And so now we see this AstraZeneca vaccine, and there are people who reported blood clots. And you know, what the data is saying: if 17 million people so far have received the AstraZeneca vaccine, and there have been 40 cases of blood clots, you know, and there have been an equal number, relative number of blood clots in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. But blood clots occur with people who don't get vaccines and even, you know, similar numbers. And so they're, they're not necessarily connected to the vaccine yet. You know, that connection has not been made with the science yet, whether it will be or not. But at the same time, you know, just the media that picked up on that and just hype. And it just lets us know just this environment that we're in where the trust is so low, Fear is so high and all right. of this is creating this, this media frenzy. And it's not, it, it's, it's something to watch. Something Absolutely. to watch. I, I think, mean. yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, I, there, you know, there was even some stuff around the death of uh, Marvin Hagler, the boxer, you know, where his, his wife had to come out and say that it wasn't like people were, I guess were saying that he had took the vaccine and that's why he died. And his wife had to come out and say like, oh, that's gosh. incorrect. So you're right. I think in this, in this environment, there is a lot of conversation still kind of like a lot of fear around a vaccine. Although I did see a report um, and I'm interested in what you think of it. Um, um, Dr. Ben, Dr. Russell, that said that um, uh, they like black people are actually um, getting the vaccine, I think, or requesting it or want to get it is like 73 percent 
um, and white people were 70% that we actually like there was a, actually a higher percentage of the black community that were interested in taking the vaccine or, or wanting the vaccine. Um, so, um, you know, and of, of course, you know, we have Ask a Black Doctor on Thursday um, to talk about this, just what, what you thought about that. And then also, I would love to get your opinion on Pittsburgh opening back up, you know, St. Patrick's Day is tomorrow. That's traditionally a, a, a holiday, you know, not to right. stereotype anybody, but that's traditionally a, uh, a celebration where folks like to go to the bars. Um, we know that bars um, during the kind of explosion that we had um, in the summertime, the contact tracing was connected specifically to bars. Um, and so just wanted to also get your, like, how do you feel about it now? Do you feel, because you were one of the people that were super adamant about the opening back up during the summertime and us not having a plan and what you said would happen kind of came to fruition. I mean, you know, we kind of went from almost no cases to this explosion. Um, how do you feel about it now? Do you feel the same way? Should we be ready to open up? I think so, so you, you asked a couple of questions in there. The first question yeah. about the, um, the, the, the hesitancy in white folks now. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, there's been a lot of attention. Everybody was skeptical just at the way that this thing out had happened and no vaccine in history has been developed with international media scrutiny of all partners and with this kind of resources. And so it was a public thing. Uh, but one of the things, you know, with Trump being who he was and did what he did, creating that seed of uncertainty amongst his people. And, you know, he created a lot of doubt. You know, though he invested heavily and, you know, sent U.S. resources, you know, for the AstraZeneca, I think they bought 300 million doses at $1.2 billion prepaid. But at the same time, he did a lot to cast doubt about the efficacy and the trustworthiness. And so, you know, this is the roosters coming home. To- right. Even he even got it. Like he took the oh, vaccine. Just like just right. Right, there. right before he left office, he's like, uh, just in case. After he had the virus, after he was super treated and all of that. But at the same time, you know, some of the damage is done. And there's been attention in conversations in our communities. We know. I mean, we know how vulnerable we, we are and I, the consequences absolutely. of that. And I think we've taken it seriously at a much higher rate. Yeah, I showed up. I mean, when I when there was an opening the other day and it was an opportunity to go, I got hit with the Moderna, I guess, two weeks ago. And I'll get my final one. And I really was early on. Uh, no, I got hit with Pfizer. Um, you know, there was some hesitancy. There was some fear. Uh, I had to overcome a bunch of stuff. But interesting, when I walked away, I did feel better. It was like January 20th again. Uh, you know, when I took that coat <laughs> off when there was a transition of presidential, I walked out of there like, okay, I'm I can, I'm one close step, closer step to seeing my mother who I've not seen in nine months. So a lot of people I'm talking to are getting it because they miss family. However, they may believe what they believe about it. They know it's it's a key to getting to see family and grandchildren and other folks they have not been able to see in a long time. So, uh, but I do believe that because we do have a lot of Trump supporters in the region that we're in. Um, I am concerned about, you know, this kind of broad reopening, you know, looking at what's going on with spring breaks in different places. But in our region, and I know I'm going to stay masked up. There, there's no way I'm letting down because uh, I think we're going to get a bump. And for what Fauci is saying, um, you know, he's, he's very concerned about another way because we do, you know, 70 percent is one thing. That, but that means 
it's a whole lot of people saying no. Right. So, you know, we're, we're far from that. This was a, um, a good comment. I just wanted to highlight. It says of registered voters, middle-aged Republican men are the least likely uh, to want to get vaccinated. So that just kind of goes into the point that you made, uh, Dr. Bay, that kind of Trump effect, I guess. Right. And, and so I said, we can go on this and we can talk about this, but I want to make sure we have leave some time for our guests. But yes. to, to your other part of your question was, you know, no, we should not, bars should not be open for St. Patrick's Day. This is going to be a mess. All of the pressure and all of the money that they're going to lose by not opening. I think we're, we're close enough now where we can see if we do what we need to do, we can, you know, open up responsibly. It's still too early for the kind of madness that you know is going to be happening on the South Side. You know it's going to be happening in Oakland. You know, so we pump your it's brakes. Going, it's, going, it's going down now. <laughs> I mean, I drove through last Friday and, and I was like, this is, this is not good. There's a whole lot of people in here. So a couple things I wanted to touch on before we move to our fabulous guest. Uh, one, y'all stay awake around voter suppression. You know, all the stuff that we really used to look at in, in high school, we'd read about, and the Jim Crow South, and they ain't got nothing on these dudes in 2021. There are currently 253 voter suppression laws of, that are uh, Republicans are trying to pass in 43 separate states. It is a full court press right now. So this is not looking back to the 50s. This is today. I mean, crazy mess like you can't give people food and water who are standing in line to vote. And I mean, just any and everything they can to discourage voter uh, participation. You know, are they going to be successful? What do you guys think? Um, I, well, I, I think if we stand by and let it, I, I, I just want to lift up the great work that um, Latasha uh, Brown and Black Voters Matter Fund is doing. Mm -hmm. um, I love the fact that she's making these corporations um, declare on one side and another. You know, um, they did the research in Georgia and they found a lot of those corporations uh, supported the politicians that were pushing a lot of these Jacodian vote bills. We know what this is about. They're, this is, you know, um, I, I think Tony Norman um, had an article about it today. Um, it's the new Jim Crow. You know, we, we know it's that you're mad that black people voted and because black people voted and the, and the numbers that we voted in Georgia went blue Two democratic senators were voting in. And now you want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But I just love the fact that, you know, they made Coca-Cola come out and denounce this. They made, I think home Depot uh, come out and denounce this. So I love the fact that it's like, nah, we're going to put you and, and your, and your brand also on the line. If you're donating to these candidates that are pushing these really illegal uh, voting restrictions, we want to hold you accountable. So I do, you know, shout out to them, but it is something that we have to pay attention to. It's, it's, yeah. it's going to, because it's going to be in Pennsylvania. If, if not already here, um, they're already trying to make changes in Pennsylvania right now around voting because, you know, we decided the election uh, towards um, uh, president Biden and vice president Harris. So we definitely have to be watchful of that. Yeah, and we got to plan accordingly, whatever that is. So I just, I just needed, you know, our listeners to really be aware of just how big this is. And so, last thing I want to talk about before we bring our guest in is you had a pretty amazing show on policing yesterday. Two hours with uh, guests, both local and national, and it is, it is one of those things that I, I think One Hood Media is doing so well is tackling these massive systemic issues and bringing them down to kind of bite-sized pieces. It's why we're doing this educational series. 
But share Absolutely. with us a little bit about what happened yesterday. I, I, I just thought it was pretty amazing. Uh, thank you. I mean, we, we came together in a coalition with the Last Release Accountability and uh, other organizations um, like, you know, Abolitionist Law Center, Take Action, Mon Valley, Prevention Point, um, to talk about how to reimagine public safety. Um, and, you know, so we had our first kind of community town hall, you know, shout out to, to Leon, you know, it's Leon's birthday today. So, you know, if you if you as Facebook friend, you know, wish wish Leon Ford a, a happy birthday, happy 28th uh, birthday. Uh, but we had me, Leon. We had Michelle Kinney. Uh, we had um, 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 Robert Salim Holbrook from Abolition Law Center kind of on our on our local panel. And then we had a national panel that included, you know, uh, a Tim Black of Cahoots. That's become a very popular program when it comes to alternatives to policing, as well as we had folks from Decriminalize Seattle. Uh, we had a brother from a program called Dasher in Denver. They instituted a, a program called the Star Program where they're they're um, having mental health people answer mental health calls. They answered over 700 calls and not one of them led to a necessity to add call for police and not one of those people got arrested. Um, and so that's the type they're just, and this was a, this was in the first six months. So just think about mm -hmm. that. Like, you know, somebody's having a mental health breakdown. Um, you know, Dr. Bay always talks about that. You know, if you got a hammer, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to see a nail, you're going to hammer it. That's what you do. Um, and so to have somebody that's trained to deescalate and train in mental health go on these calls, but to say we took 700 calls and not one arrest and there was no need, you know, because that's what the, for police and, oh, they got violent. They jumped, they made a move. And so you feel like you have to, you know, deal with that with violence. They didn't even need to call any extra police. And so it was very powerful. Also folks from the center of policing was involved um, 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 last night as well. And so it was a great conversation um yeah. and it's on one hood media if you want to follow up with it you know shout out to uh to brandy who uh, was the co-host and shout out to one hood power who allowed us to kind of take over their monday night um <laughs> to have that conversation yeah it was a powerful conversation indeed i was great say power we keep talking about power, the year of power and and that definitely was a, a wonderful way to get going so let's get into this conversation today uh, we are bringing on uh, three educators and call, get your friends, get everybody. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, and so let's bring them in. Uh, let's start off with first with Dr. Valerie Kinlock, who is a dean of education at Pitt. We have Dr. Erica Weathers, who is assistant professor of educational policy at Penn State. And Dr. Lori Dilali. And I think I said that right. I may have messed it up. O'Connor, who's assistant professor of urban education at Pitt. Hey, y'all. <laughs> we have uh, unmute. I had the, the opportunity to talk to, to all of these educational powerhouses over the last week, and they're doing some amazing work. One of the things I love about this show is we get to bring in people doing amazing work. And so um, I'm going to ask each of you, let, I, Dr. Weathers, I'm, I'm going to start with you to kind of introduce yourself and a little bit about what you're focusing on in education. We're gonna do that with all three of you and then we're just gonna jump in on a, on a few broad questions and start a conversation. All right, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Erica Weathers, um, an assistant professor at Penn State. So I'm here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm in the education policy studies department at Penn State. So my work focuses on um, understanding educational 
inequality, both the causes and consequences of educational inequality, um, as well as trying to understand the role of um, K-12 education policies in reducing or exacerbating uh, educational equity. Oftentimes, education policies are thought to be uh, implemented with, you know, quote, unquote, the best of intentions. Um, but as for many of us know, that doesn't always pan out to be the case. Um, and I show that in my research. So I look at stuff related to school finance and segregation, uh, school resource officers and police officers in schools, uh, truancy policy. Um, and that's sort of the gist of my uh, current work right now. Awesome. Dean. I think I think we know what you do, but tell everybody what it is that you spend your time <laughs> with in terms of education every day. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me here. I am Valerie Kemlock. I'm the dean of the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and so I'm focused on thinking about critical justice-based leadership, working with communities and schools, and making sure that we move forward and having an equitable agenda that guides the work that we do in the School of Education, but really at universities across the nation and how we can think about partnering with other people to ensure that we have access to high quality, effective, engaged educational opportunities that our kids need, our communities need, families need, and we should rightfully be providing to all people. So I'm excited to be here. All right, and definitely not least, Dr. O'Connor. Hello, um, Lori Delaney O'Connor, and I am an assistant professor at the Center for Urban Education and the Ed Foundation's Organization and Policy Department, also um, at the School of Education at Pitt um, with Dean Valerie. And my work really focuses on caregivers, and I say that broadly. Often we say parents, families, but that can extend to neighbors, grandparents, older siblings, all the folks who care very deeply um, about children's education and what it means to truly engage them in formalized education, so in schools, um, but also the ways that they're educating, because we know all families are engaged in this project, um, that they are educating their children and supporting them through learning opportunities. And so I focus both in the in-school space um, and the out-of-school spaces, and in particular connected to my colleagues on the panel, really thinking about issues of equity um, in that space around families. Excellent. Dr. Bay, you you said these three have to be here. What were you thinking when uh, when you pulled these three together? What, what were you hoping to happen today? I want to make sure it does. I, I was th just the, the word Valerie used, Dr. Kenlock said, we talked about educational justice. And that's not a word. We don't usually pair those two when we're talking about what's happening. And, you know, we, we, we use equity, but, ec you know, we, we we have a vague understanding of what equity is. We know that's something we want, but when we're talking about justice and education and, and we're looking at what's happening now, you know, in, during the pandemic with education and what's happening with kids. What my hope was, I mean, so just looking at, you know, I've been on a panel with Lori and I've been on a panel with Valerie before. I was like sort of stalking Erica's CV and looking at what's happening at Penn State. I'm at, that's where I went to school. That's my alma mater. And so as I'm seeing what, what these three folks are doing, I'm thinking like, like we need to have a conversation because we've been talking in Pittsburgh about all the things that are wrong with education. And we've not gotten to the point like, okay, so what are we doing about it? Where do we start building? Where's that strong edge from that gives us the foundation to say, okay, I'm hopeful now. And so, you know, what Lori's talking about these caregivers. And right now we were on a call earlier today and half the people on the call were also, you know, while they're at work, 
are educating their kids. Their kids are in school with them right now. And so they're managing that. And, you know, as, as you, you bring this point home, that role, that's, that's always has been a 24-7 role. And now it's, you know, it's, it's making its way into their nine to five. And so just the, like all of these things that we can and should be talking about, my hope going into this thing was we have an opportunity to reimagine and recommit to what public education means because we know our educational system is in scrambles right now. And the push and the desire is let's get back to what we used to do because it's comfortable and we're familiar with it. When Erica will tell you, none of that worked. Our kids were not faring well. And it's not just a Pennsylvania thing. Very few places where you have concentrations of our kids are those school districts doing well. And so we have this opportunity help us, like give us some, there are a lot of people in the chat already. There are a lot of people in the audience that are advocates and parents and they like, they're, they're, they're chopping at the bit for something to do. And so save us. <laughs> <laughs> you're muted. You're on, you're on mute, uh, Dr. Russell. I'm she never, never muted. No, I don't. <laughs> but I was starting with Dr. Weathers. I wanted to know, is that where we start? Is it, is it with policy that we begin to reimagine education? I think it is. But policy, my criticism of policy is that so often it exists in silos, right? It's devoid of practice. It's devoid of voices from community. So I think we start with policy, but we need to start with policy that is actually engaged, that engages communities, that engages families, that engages those closest on the ground um, to implement solutions that can actually be effective. If we don't do that, it's sort of this cyclical cycle of people who are, you know, lawmakers, not necessarily having experience in the classroom or on the ground, um, dictating what happens in school. So yes, policy is an answer, but policy that is engaged um, and includes everyone. Yeah, Dr. Delaney O'Connor, you know, you you work with communities and uh, trying to get this, you know, policy is a scary word. It's kind of like, ah, you know, how do you really get them to understand how some of these policies are potentially negatively affecting their families and how do you get them engaged? You know, what are, what are some of your ideas around that? Sure, and that's a great question that I think connects back to what Erica was saying. I mean, I think it's this element of you're living policies every day, whether you recognize it or not. So some of it is that recognition, right? To say, hey, that seems like it's really far away from you and it's happening in Harrisburg, if you're in Pennsylvania, it's happening in DC, it's happening, but all of the implications are impacting you, you know, as Jamil said, not just in your children's school, but now in your home, right? And in very, very clear ways. So recognizing what are the practices? I mean, I think for me, it's, it's number one, what are the practices you're already engaged in? Um, and I know when Cheryl and I talked, we were really excited about, you know, saying, hey, there is all of this good stuff that families are doing with their children, that black families are doing with their children at home. Home um, that is not recognized by schools. So the first step is sort of getting those already happening actions recognized. And you, you know, as family members are your children's best advocates, but you also know your children best. And so even that, you know, I, I think lots of folks will say, you know, they're, they're capital A activists and they're involved in a lot of the amazing groups we have in Pittsburgh and around the state. But all families are, are acting in this activist way. So sort of recognizing it and connecting with other folks who are doing that work, I think is a critical part of building up toward that policy. And I, I think, you know, that point Erica made, I, I see it as sort of coming down from policy and they have to meet somewhere and they're, they're sort of informing each other. Yeah. 
Definitely. Dr. Kilock, how do they meet? I mean, you're, you're, you're sitting in an interesting seat. You know, you, you taught, you, you, there's policy, you're teaching uh, new educational leaders. You know, what is that connection that you're seeing? You know, I, I think, well, what is the connection? That's a great question, actually. Um, and I'm going to pause on that. I, I think the connection is until we value human lives, until we understand that where we start is nowhere except for in communities, in families, with real people, until we get to that point of understanding that there is a need to do this work with other people and not mandate how people interact with this work, but how we learn from them, then we're always not going to start at the right place. And so for me, the connection here is how do we take the realities of human lives and make sure that we are attending to what people already say they want because they know what they need? as opposed to assuming that we have some kind of magic formula that if you do this one thing, then it'll work for you. So then we have to ask questions of families. We have to ask questions of caregivers. We have to be in community spaces with other people. And, you know, and I know I sit in this position as dean of a school of education, but before I was ever a dean, I was a black girl in the, in the segregated South with a mother who is, was a retired nurse and a father who was a retired truck driver. And they wanted to ensure that we had access to the things that they, they didn't have access to. So if we start where people are and we understand the stories that make their lives what their lives are, then we provide the resources that they need in order for them to be free. And we do that from our multiple places and positions, whether we are a dean or a faculty member, a researcher, a teacher, a community member, and it takes all of us to actually do that work collectively. Uh, just Siri, I'm going to ask you to put on your your dad activist hat right now. You know <laughs> what what are you what are you hearing when you hear that? How is, are, are some of the things that they're saying connecting to you as as a parent? Oh, I think absolutely. I think you know, particularly like you said in this time. I mean, you know we could almost say like education almost like changed, you know, it, it changed dramatically in 2020. I mean, the, I mean, we literally, and you know, you know, credit to the teachers, you know what I'm saying? That had to like on the fly, basically, you know, implement a whole new way of teaching and connecting the students. And um, so I know it's been very difficult, just like you said, as a parent, you know, you know, my, my children aren't respecters of zoom calls or, online conversations. (laughs) They want, if they want attention, they will get you. They might come down here right now. Um, And so it's just, it's just, it's just a a new reality that folks had, but particularly for educators because of the, you know, um, um, how folks had to really change in, in, in the way they had to change. So that's definitely, but I think, and, and we're, you know, um, we're actually going through this process right now. And I, I think I might have spoken a little bit about it on the show, but we began to interview high school students about not only like what about what the future of education is, like what are some of the things you like about actually what's happening right now? One of the interesting responses was um, one of the biggest things that students liked about uh, uh, virtual learning was the fact that they didn't have to get up as early, you know, like the, like how early school starts Right. oftentimes was an issue uh, uh, for students. And so it was like, well, I can get an extra hour of sleep because they didn't have to get up and go and get on the bus and do all of those things. Um, so even, and I, and I know there's actually been studies around possibly uh, making the school time later um, and that that'd be beneficial towards students. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of students that were interested in 
you know, culturally responsive uh, pedagogy. Like, why aren't I learning about ourselves? Why, you know, it was it was interesting even when we had a conversation around what schools talked about the 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 January sixth Capitol riot and which schools didn't. You know what I'm saying? So it was more like the majority white schools had those conversations and, you know, the schools that were predominantly black did not. So that that was also interesting um, to to see those type of things. But I I did have a question uh, for Dr. Weathers, if I if I can. And and it was around like, have you seen because I kind of want to go to where where, where Dr. Bays wants to go in terms of how can we fix it? Um, you know, we have a serious situation with our public schools, particularly right now. Have you seen policies or do you have like some policies that you've seen implemented that has affected and, and been able to kind of close this gap, uh, particularly between white and black students? I mean, the in, in Pittsburgh is so wide. Um, my initial reaction was just to throw the whole, like, can we just throw the whole school out and start? I know we can't do that. And I know that's like, for me to not be in the system is really like, it's also like unfair, you know, because I don't know what teachers and folks are dealing with every day. Um, Mm -hmm. so have you seen policies that maybe we can champion that you've seen been able to directly affect, um, you know, BIPOC students in terms of being able to close these gaps? So that's a really good question. And it's a, it's a yes and a no answer. So I'm, I'll probably sound like a broken record. If you ever talk to me again, I'll, I'll advocate for this point. It all boils down to resources, resources, buys, materials, and things that can be done to close these gaps, right? Resources True. can make sure that students are in schools with counselors, um, maybe instead of police, right? Um, resources can make sure that students have, you know, effective teachers, that they have building conditions that are safe, that there's not lead in their drinking water, um, right? So I would say I, for places that are advocating or putting forth resources or states or districts that have more equitable funding policies, the answer is yes. But I don't think that there's a, a place that exists that gets it right exactly. But I will always advocate for resources. There's literature that shows um, when you connect it to sort of desegregation efforts or school finance reforms, that when black students were in schools with more resources, not necessarily in school, not, not even necessarily not in schools with white students per se, but with more resources, they performed better. They had better outcomes, both in the short run and the long term, right? Like they graduated, they were less likely to be in poverty, less likely to have um, involvement with the criminal justice system. Um, So I'm going to always advocate for resources and using those resources effectively. You know, just just a quick follow-up. It was, um, I met a guy who created technology to read essays. Um, and he actually talked about that, that technology, you know, they, you know, they could use it to, for the SATs and different things, but he actually told me that the technology actually led to more inequity. And it was, it was exactly what you said. And he, it it disappointed him as somebody like he created, he thought, wow, this could be a tool to help, um, poor districts, but the poor districts could not afford his technology. And he basically was like, the people that could afford my technology were these districts that had resources. And so they got the benefit of his technology. And it actually made him like leave that profession um, and and, want to do something else because his disappointment with that. So I just wanted to highlight how important that resources are, because just like you said, it might be innovation that's happening right now that folks can't even afford. Uh, because we don't have the resources to provide our, our children with. So thank you for that. 
Yeah, and I, can I say one thing too? I don't even necessarily, it's not necessarily resources for innovation too, it's resources for necessities. Black and brown students are in schools without the bare minimum. And so we need to go well beyond the bare minimum, um, but it's not even, we, we can't even innovate if we can't, you know, just sort of sustain students in, in, in these schools. You know, I like the fact that you use words like financial, you know, segregation, that the way that, that dollars are being appropriated. Uh, are huge. You know, um, Dr. Holly is on right now, and I'm looking at some of the uh, responses. And she was saying, "Is it is it policy or is it policy versus implementation? Uh, is it that we get these things on the the books, but how they're implemented in schools with black and brown children are very different?" You know, I, I don't know. Is that the, is that the way you guys may see it? And anybody can can jump in on this. Well, I guess I would just simply say, um, I think it's both. I think that we have to recognize that we have histories of policies that are inequitable and ineffective. So on the one hand, it is definitely about policy. Um, and, and then on the other hand, it's about the policies that get it right that don't get implemented. And so all policies are not equitable. All policies are not providing resources to the school districts that need them the most. All policies mm -hmm. are not elevating black teachers to the levels that they rightfully should be in. All policies are not paying teachers the, the, the money that they should be paid. So we have to truly look at the policies that are being enacted at the same time that we have to look at the implementation of these policies. We have wealth disparities in schools and in communities. We have the need to, to, to make sure that our teachers are paid that our teachers are seen as valuable resources and human beings in the lives of all of our kids. We have to talk about how resources get distributed or even held back when they're supposed to be distributed and how resources get reallocated to the things that we do not need. And our kids are hungry in schools and teachers are the ones who are making sure that they are taken care of and yet teachers are not getting the credit that they rightfully deserve. So I don't think it's an either or question here. I think it's a both and now what are we gonna do about it? How are we going to, on the one hand, think about the policies that have been ineffective for black and brown kids, for example, for teachers, for even the paraprofessionals in communities that are, who are not in schools, but who are doing the hard work of ensuring that our kids have safe spaces and places and access to resources. On the other hand, it is also pushing back on legislation and being able to say, we know what doesn't work, but we also know what works. You know, this conversation is not just all about the bleakness of stuff. It's also about the joy of knowing that we know what works and now how do we implement policies and ways that get to what we know works for all of our kids. I mean, we can go back to the 1960s and the freedom schools. You know, we can go all the way back to September Clark, for example, and the yes. work that all of these rights activists have always done for freedom so we got models for how policies should become implemented and created. We're just not paying attention. We've got a history of not paying attention, though. Uh, Dr. Delaney O'Connor, I mean, how do we move past that? There's brilliant stuff that we all read. We know what's right. You know, to Siri's point, my daughter said the other day, you know what? Mom, you've been talking 10 years about how we already know that it's bad for kids to get up at six o'clock in the morning to go to school. She said, the best thing about this is I roll up at 745 and I'm ready to work at eight. She said, I'm, you know, because I asked her, does she want to go back to school? She's like, nah, I'm good. Because she doesn't want to get on the bus at 6.15. So she's like, how come y'all all know this, but y'all won't do it? She said, it makes no sense to me. 
And, you know, why aren't we doing what we know is best? What's stopping us? Oh, that's a, <laughs> I see Valerie leaning back. That's a big question, right? And I think, there, I think there are a lot of things going on, and I know my colleagues would probably want to comment on this as well. I mean, I think at some level, particularly since school has been happening at home, I think families are very actively trying to do what they know to be right. I think at a broader level, we don't always have policymakers or even districts listening to families and communities to say, hey, we know what's working on behalf of the children in our family, the children in our community. So when Valerie brings up, you know, we know how things have been done. Those in thinking about things like freedom schools, those were always sort of against the grain of traditional school models, against policy, having to act against what was being inflicted in particular on black and brown children. Um, and so I think despite the knowing, I mean, I think it's, we could always say, right, we could say white supremacy and whose knowledge is valued and centered in policy making, right? And whose outcomes are valued and centered in policy making. I mean, when we think about who is the least likely to get to weigh in on policy for young people, it's young people, right? And then followed by that, then they're educators, right? So we know that we as a, as a nation have a history of ignoring the voices of young people and ignoring the voices of families and ignoring the voices of educators, particularly when those educators are black and brown, right? And particularly when those families are black and brown and particularly when um, those children are black and brown. And so I think that the, the difference is who knows it and who actually has the power to be the ones to sort of influence those higher level policy changes. So I think that's why we're seeing a lot more changes on the ground. Families, you know, saying, hey, actually, for lots of families, this online thing is not working and it's a mess. And But for other families, they're not having to worry about their children being profiled, being disciplined, getting up early in the morning and not being able to, you know, to be healthy. And they're seeing it and they're embracing it and they're trying to figure out how they can move that forward. But as a collective, there is still a push. Um, I was just, you know, just saying this to a colleague today. I, I hope that we don't embrace it, but there is this push toward going back to normal. And as you said, when we started, normal wasn't working, right? But there is this really strong desire to get back to schools even though the, we know those schools weren't working. And so I think it, it falls. Schools, Norma was working for somebody, Dr. Yes, Dillard, it was. Honor. Let me come on. Yes, Norma was, was, was working for a large group of folks who weren't complaining that Norma was working. And now we're in a pandemic and now folks are like, we won't get back to normal. I mean, Norma worked for some people who wanted it to work for them, right? Yes, yes. And right. it didn't work for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so sometimes Ooh. I fall into audience member mode. I'm just like li listening and I'm like, I forget I'm supposed to be a part of the conversation. But I, I was thinking about, you know, I was I was trained as a teacher. I was trained as an educator. And I remember, a, 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 I don't know if it was a, probably a curriculum and instruction class. And they were talking about, you know, modes of learning and the most effective ways to your question, Cheryl, about, you know, why don't we do some of the things? The least effective way of teaching is to stand and deliver. You're reaching the fewest number of kids via lecture. You know, the, there's a small group that that works for, but most kids need some version of hands-on or engagement. But what's the most dominant mode of teaching? Stand and deliver. It's the easiest. It requires the less prep. And so we fall back to that. And so I was thinking about that. 
And the other point, because like I said, I got lost like four comments ago in the in the <laughs> audience mode. I was thinking about just the policy and with Valerie, you talked about, we forget that these are humans. And if our goal were, okay, how do we make sure these humans can thrive? You know, and are we basing our policies on human needs? When I was teaching in the McKeesport School District, they adopted a zero tolerance for weapons policy. And the audience, and the audience, the the the, the residents, parents, you know, there was a lot of support. Zero tolerance for weapons, no weapons of any kind. And a kid comes to school in an elementary school dressed as a fireman, and he has an axe, a plastic axe that went with his fireman uniform. And the they kid did was not. Offended. And there's no like there, there, there was it. It was spelled out: no toys, no facsimiles, no no fake weapons. This kid had a fireman and the axe is clearly a weapon and he was suspended. And so we don't, we become slaves to policy. That, that's the policy it says here, kid gets suspended. And I think that's where it boils back down to sort of the difference between policy and implementation, right? Because mm -hmm. that policy, I bet, is implemented differentially. Like we know from literature and research on school discipline disparities that, you know, even for the same infractions, Black students more, are more likely to be suspended. So chances are if that white kid were the person who brought that plastic ax to school, they would not have been suspended. And that's part of the problem is we are, you know, sort of this racist um, structures in schools that allow that to happen. Um, the implementation, the differential uh, implementation, sort of the disparate implementation of these policies is what's really impacting our students, I just wanted to say. No, we appreciate that. I, you know, we've got a really live chat here, so I'm kind of looking off to the side uh, a little bit, and people are really enjoying this conversation. So I, I thank you again. Um, and and Tracy Reed, who's who's running for for school board, said something that I often say is that school policies and schools themselves seem to be made for adults, not for kids. That we really do a lot of sustaining different policies and different behaviors to make adults comfortable. When do kids get centered again back in education? What do we need to do to make that happen? Let me add on to that question because flippantly I, I used to say, and I probably do, the more I say it, the more I believe it, that so many school boards, that your role as a school board member is one, balance the budget, two, reduce our liability. <laughs> and, and whatever happens after that, you know, we'll see about it. But first, I mean, we have to balance the budget and reduce the liability of the district. And so many decisions are made with those two. Have we checked those two first? Wow. Uh, now back to your question, Dr. Hallrus. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are we centering kids and not, and not budgets and liability? <laughs> I reframe my question. Anybody could jump in. <laughs> I just want to say, I mean, I think connected to the, the initial question that you asked, this element of when will we re, when will we center kids again? Again, mm -hmm. we're a bunch of, of folks who are interested in history. The history of schools in this nation were about creating workers, right? And creating mm -hmm. distinctions across workers and creating right folks who were going to participate in the ways that we tell them they're going to participate. And so I think schools continue to reflect that. Um, and and again, I think the schools that don't, that, that really do center children's needs and their needs as children, right, which are developmentally completely different than adults, um, are not, I mean, they're, they're the exception rather than the rule. 
I, I that's just stunning to me what you just said. <laughs> Painful. Uh, Valerie, what do you think when she says that? I mean, you, you see it the same way? And I'm going back and forth between doctor and first names and we've all talked. So I'm Valerie. I'm so Valerie. Sure, I'm Valerie. Totally. (laughs) Thank you. And let me just say, um, you know, I was on mute and I, and all these ideas are going through my head and I'm trying to like censor myself here because I don't want to, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say and it's going to be taken however it's going to be taken. (laughs) But this is the thing. That's how we roll here. (laughs) This is just us. The thing is, it's, it's just us and all these folks too, right? <laughs> but this only five or six. <laughs> when we have to ask the question about centering kids and young people, we have a problem. Like when we have to ask that question because we don't do it, we are totally missing everything that education is supposed to be for. It's supposed to be about kids and young adults and the joy and the curiosity and the experience and the how do I learn? How do I be who I am in my full being? How do I understand my identity as related to another person's identity? How do I grow up in a system that is supposed to be built on centering kids and young people? And so we get Mm -hmm. to a point where historically, where have we, where, where were we and where are we now when we talk about kids and young folks in education? They're, they become sort of like on the side of the larger narrative about what adults want, what we feel comfortable with, what we don't feel comfortable doing, how we can't hold people accountable for the work that they're supposed to lead. And it's like, we have got to recenter education by remembering that it is about our kids. It is about our young adults. It's about our communities. It's about creating spaces for people to be who they want to be and to do the work of equity and justice in education, but also across the world. If our policies don't get us that closer to talking about kids and young folks, we're not doing the work. If what we teach in our classrooms is not about kids and young people, we're not doing the work. And if our curriculum does not reflect that, then we are totally not supposed to be in education. We think everyone could be a teacher. Everyone can't be a teacher. We think anyone can care for kids and young people. Anyone cannot care for kids and young people. So we have to like rewind all the way. And if we don't wake up thinking that our kids and young adults are the reasons why we should do everything in the world, then we are totally lost. And and I don't mean to sort of go on with this point, but it's like, we have got to always start with our kids and our young people at the core of everything that we do. Policy decisions, curricular decisions, hiring decisions, leadership decisions. And because we don't, we will always have this conversation about why it's all about the adults. And if it's not about the kids and the young people, then that's just disheartening. Yeah, no. And I I think, you know, um, um, Valerie, studies have shown that studies have shown when you focus on um, the students, um, when you're when you're uplifting the students, when they're able to see themselves um, reflected in the schools, um, in the hallways, in these different spaces that they do better. Uh, but like I said, I think, you know, we have that kind of like what Dr. Bay talked about, this idea that like and particularly comes along when it's black and brown students that we need like to be policed and not educated. You know, we need to be 
put in systems of discipline and not education. I remember when I worked for Pittsburgh Public Schools, I had an experience where um, somebody asked me to see a student and he was really upset and he was talking about how he had got suspended. And I, and I said, what happened? And he got into, um, he had a, uh, a headband on and the security guard said he couldn't have a headband on, but he had a headband on because he had a cut on his forehead and he was ashamed you know he was trying to cover up the cut and so the security guard grabbed it and took it off of his head and when he did he hit the cut on his headband so of course that student got upset and he got suspended and so i told the student i said hey um you like in your student manual you actually have the power as a student to request a hearing if you disagree with a suspension and so I just showed him, I said, you know, I said, if you have witnesses, you can bring those witnesses. It's in your manual. That's why I always tell my students, read your, read your student manual. I, I, I got called that night. I, I got a nighttime call from my supervisor <laughs> that we had to go to that school and meet with that principal. And they wanted to know why I get and, and I'm saying like, well, I didn't tell him anything but what was in the book his handbook right but it was that thing of like we and i think that's what it comes down to it's like we know best for we know what's best for y'all instead of saying well we actually want the young people that that's a part of our to be a part of this and when you talk to people who really love their school and their school experience it's because they felt a part of it. They felt like yeah. they were part of a community. They were part of a group that loved and cared about them. And they loved and cared about those folks too. And they weren't alienated in that. Um, so yeah, I just, I just wanted to co-sign uh, uh, what, what you said with my own personal experience. I appreciate that. I do. And and I'm just, I'm going to stop talking right here after I say, I totally believe <laughs> You know what? I, I, I went to school in, in Charleston, South Carolina, and I had majority black teachers who actually knew where I lived and they would come to my house when I wasn't in school. They, they knew my family. And, and that's what I want for everyone else. I want to have communities of educators inside of schools who care about our kids and who will do anything. I can name all of my teachers from kindergarten to 12th grade. And it's like, wow. I can name them because they poured their souls into me. And they were the ones who said, you can go to college, even if you think that you can't. We see you. We believe in you. And we will do anything that we can do to ensure your success. Because my success is my people's success. It's my mother and my father and the community people's success because I could never do what I do without that larger lineage of people who said, you might not believe that you can do this, Valerie, but we know you can. Now let's support you. That is what we need for all of our kids. Our black kids need that for, for themselves, but we need that for ourselves as well. And until we can get that in education, then we're going to always be talking about what adults should do and what kids and young adults should not be doing. And that's not the conversation. You know, there, there's a lot in the, in the thread now that is talking about the fact that, you know, we have so few black teachers who are, are doing even there to do some of the nurturing that you're talking about. I mean, I'm looking at my daughter now who's a senior in high school and I'm pushing HBCUs on her right now. And she's, you know, and, and I know I'm being pushy, but she's never had a black teacher ever. 
And as a, as a person who formerly taught, I used to teach um, principals and teach um, super people want to be superintendents. And one of the things that I learned during that couple of years that I was doing that teaching, they, they were talking about discipline, test scores, attendance. We never got into kids very much while I was teaching. Sorry, Obviously, Dr. I was Cheryl. teaching. Dr. Cheryl, did you say your daughter has never had a black teacher? Never. She's 18 years old. She's never had a black teacher. Right? My son's 28. Neither has he. And so, you know, this is this is my push to try to, you know, and I know if we weren't supplementing, and there's so many black women in my house on a constant to to kind of supplement what she is missing. But um, you know, it it's the focus has just not been on that. How do we get more black folks back into education? I understand why that has been a difficult path that it's not people don't always look back lovingly about their educational experiences and it doesn't drive them to want to be in a classroom. How do we make this more appealing? You know, Dr. Kenlock, you, you this is what you do. You know, you you teach teachers, you're responsible for that. How do we get us back in there wanting to be in the classroom? Any of you can ask, ask answer that, however. I can jump in. Go ahead, Lori. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I think it's because this, this is a conversation, right, Valerie? This is a conversation we're always having at the school, right? That this is, we have meetings about this. We have a lot because there's so much stake in it, right? And this is what we're trying to do. I, I think the points that have been made about, you know, the history of, of driving black teachers out of the classroom, right? That's a huge, that, a huge loss um, in terms of, of just sort of gutting the infrastructure of education of the associated trauma that black folks may not want to come back into a place to dehumanize them, right? And that there's a lot of reasons right. they may not want to be. And that there's this challenge. I mean, I think this all goes hand in hand with what Valerie was talking about in terms of humanizing and what Erica was talking about in terms of in terms of policy and thinking about making schools places where black educators would want to be so they know that they can nurture mm -hmm. young people rather than have to test them and have to police them. So, right, it, it involves both recruitment, right? That, that could be part of it. And we, I think we think very, very, like concretely about that, what it means to support paraprofessionals into being able to move to the next step if they want to move into teaching roles, what it means to pull from folks who are doing other things in community that really is educating. It's just not in schools, right? We have so many educators um, in Pittsburgh who are working in particular with black kids and who are doing amazing things. And those are the people that you will hear kids talking about and singing their praises and saying, yeah, if only I had you in my history class or in my math class. Um, and so how do we support those folks in being able to do it? But also how do we change the way schools are structured so that when they get there, they're not subject to the same policies and it's just now a black face in front of young people, but they really can love and care and be part of the community. And so I, I think that, that we have a few things going on at the same time. As we're thinking about recruitment, we're also thinking about what it means to change education. And I kept thinking about when Valerie was saying like the difference between education, which we're talking about and schooling, and we do so much schooling mm -hmm. with young people. And so little education and so moving into that space for saying hey your practices of care are what we want not your ability to regulate not your ability to test and so I, I think that until we're moving into that space it's going to be hard to get to get more black teachers in, in, and keep them once they're there right and keep them once they're there you know, we don't have to talk about the value of that we, we know the value I, I, I 
like Valerie, I remember my kindergarten through fifth or fifth grade experience where there was maybe one white teacher. You know, that was in Beltuber School. You know, that was there. And then it started, you know, after I got out of middle school. But I was, you know, I had another experience, you know, as a parent. And when we were looking at testing kids for giftedness, okay, and in the context of white supremacy, now the, just the idea of giftedness and all of that is a whole nother you know, can of worms. But one of the, it was a researcher, and if I had I thought about this, I would have pulled his name up, who was at Penn State when I was there in grad school. And his work was looking at this, this issue specifically. In the context of white supremacy, when black men are monster, you know, they're monsters in the eyes of our society. White women cannot see giftedness in black boys. And so anytime a boy steps up or asks a question or somehow challenges, there's something else going on because I know he's not gifted. He's asking the question to be disruptive. He's a problem. And so when you look at the number of kids, and this is his researcher was showing, the number of kids who are referred for gifted testing compared to the number of exposures that they had. And it was that 98%, it was something, it was a high 90% of the middle elementary school black males that were uh, had, wait, let, me, let me try to get the numbers about right. There was a very high, the, the likelihood of a black male having a white female teacher was very high. The likelihood of he being recognized as gifted by her was very low. And so if you looked at the black boys who were ref referred to gifted programs, it was always by something other than a non-white female teacher. Wow. And, but they have so, that, that's who teaches. And so our kids are then problematized and pushed into another track because you're, you're obviously a problem because you have questions and you're curious because you're, you know, a relatively smart kid. And so the consequence, it's not just like, okay, it's a hostile classroom. There are consequences and opportunities that kids are denied because of these structures we have. And then, you know, in my experience, Dr. Bay, when I was put in a gifted program, like, and, and put in one of the, you know, the top tiers, there was no other black people there. Like, I didn't want to be there because I was always the only black student. I wanted to be in the regular classes because right. that's where all my friends were. You know, and so it was also an extra, it was like an extra burden of like, now I have to go into these, you know, quote unquote, top track or AP gifted classes and not, and, and also be by myself. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so like socially it's, it sucked as a, as a student, because then I also couldn't be around my friend, not only dealing with all the aggressions that, you know, white supremacy ads when you're in those, in those systems, but then I couldn't even lean on any of my friends because like you said, the system won't allow there to be multiple people <laughs> um, in right. that. Yeah. I just, yeah. This has been going on for decades. I can remember my brother actually got pulled out of our local school system because he was gifted and bust across town to an all white school. And there was some social isolation that happened just in the neighborhood uh, that he was different. There was a pride in the fact that he was bright, but they just like snatched him out. Like if you can't be smart and be here. 
Right. And and I remember in my own son was was explaining some economic something, historical economic something to a friend in high school. And somebody said, Well, Russell, you think you're so smart and you want to teach this? If y'all know my son, he said yes. And he and he taught it and did it well. Well, the kids were really starting to like miss the first time I really understood this in the first place. And he ended up getting the D in that class because he was told he was just, you know, he, you know, he, you being a little bit too much in here. Uh, and so even what could have been used as a time of encouragement, he was punished for that. And this, you know, these are my tiny little examples in the micro, but what we're talking about is this stuff is happening in the macro and we know it is. We, we see it every day. I also think too, it's a, it's a sense of belonging as well. So as we're reflecting on sort of these, you know, micro level experiences, but I think about my own experiences back in, in high school and being in advanced placement courses or upper level courses. I remember walking in on the first day um, to an advanced level English course and they had double booked the room. It was a study hall and it was the advanced level English. And I walked Whoa. in behind a group of white students. They sat down, took their seat. Everything was fine. The white teacher greeted me at the door and said, oh, you must be looking for the study hall. And I said, no, I'm here for English. Um, but I didn't feel welcome after that. Yeah. I didn't feel like I belonged. And I did well because, you know, that's what I was taught to do. But that matters. That matters. This hour is flying by um, and I don't want to stop. But I do want us to start to move into some, uh, you know, this has been heartfelt in so many ways. You know, we could do two more hours, right, Dr. Bay? But when we begin to talk about suggestions and ideas for, for parents and for, for educators to try to reduce some of these massive gaps we keep talking about, uh, Lori in particular, these, they're parents in this, you know, in this stream here who want to hear something about how they help do things differently to, to have better outcomes for their kids. What, what are we saying to them? So I'd say a few things. I mean, number one, like I said, I never want I, parents are doing their best for their children and doing things that the school doesn't even recognize that they know their children need. So you keep doing that. Right. And I see you snapping. Like, right. Keep doing that. Right. And what, regardless of, you know, we know that going to a PTO meeting may not be the thing your child needs and you're helping them at home. And it doesn't you know, doesn't matter that that's not recognized. But what I do want to emphasize, I think, especially for folks who are who are in Pittsburgh or who are nearby, that we have a lot of of wonderful organizations that are already engaged in this kind of advocacy and that I think are already engaged in systems change. So if you don't want to reinvent the wheel right, and you want to move things forward, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, Black women for a better education, right, that are doing all this work in terms of advocacy and collective work, right? That I think that collective humanization around schooling that Valerie was talking about, around education, not around schooling, but around changing schooling um, is critical. I know, um, you know, A Plus Schools does some work around supporting parents so they can testify at school board meetings, so they can, again, find other folks who are sort of like-minded around that and you don't have to do it again uh, or on your own. One uh, PA also does some of that, some of that advocacy work. And and so, you know, I, I would really, really advocate. It doesn't mean, mean you need, you know, I know what my schedule looks like. I know what folks who are listening schedule looks like. You're like, one more thing. I mean, it may be jumping on a Zoom while your kids are with you and doing that. Um, I think that being part of those organizations in whatever way that you can, can really support 
this more systems level change that we're talking about, right? And also continuing to not only practice the way you've been practicing, but also recognize other folks practice. I know in a lot of my research, one of the things that we see, especially in black and brown families and communities is this more collective advocacy. So it may be, and you know, Cheryl and I were talking about this, like it may be that you can't get up to that activity, but you can take, your neighbors can take your children or, you know, grandparents are going up. So making sure that we continue to engage that, but also recognize that because I think it, it's a real, um, it, it, it harnesses a lot more of that collective energy that I think, you know, you just don't see schools themselves are often very individualistic. And I think that, yeah. that to me is really critical that like really, really, really relying on and building on the collective. The collective has grown so much over this last couple of Absolutely, years. Absolutely, right? Mutual aid. Mutual aid, uh, in, yeah. Yeah. In the time of COVID, I think we have really, um, I think we should be proud of ourselves. I mean, there have been, you know, Black Women for a Better ed Education is a relatively new, you know, group, but it, it, is, it is pushing hard for, for candidates, for school board and education uh, parents. And, you know, this wasn't here, you know, a year and a half ago. So there, there are new tools, you know, 1PA. There are all sorts of new tools for us to use. And, you know, we're going to make sure, even if we go back later in the chat, that how to connect to these are going to be in the chat in case, um, you know, someone wants to, to make that connection. I, I, I would also want to shout out just Young Black Motivated Kings and Queens is also just a younger yes. group um, that also do a lot around education and scholarships and um, supporting um, 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 students that are uh, black students that are in um, in colleges right now. So just as a younger group of folks that have kind of stepped into that because they do a lot around education. So also just want to include them as well. Yeah. I mean, it's still a real thing in their lives and, and who knows better than, than somebody that just is either in it or just gone through it. Uh, Valerie, you know, what do you, what do you want to leave? What jewels you want to leave? I'm, I'm having demands in the chat that you all come back, all three of you. They're like <laughs> part two and part three, when they coming back, this is not enough. But what are some of the little practical things that you want to leave, tidbits that you want to leave before we close up? Well, before I offer a tidbit, I'm just going to say maybe it should be the Erica, Lori, and Valerie sort of like on the road kind of thing because we can reimagine education across the state, and I bet we can do Ooh. this across the nation. I'm just putting I'll drive the bus. Just thinking. Just throwing just it out know. here. <laughs> Gosh, my day has been made. <laughs> but you know, a few things come to mind, and and I'll make it quick. Um, I think a few things that we haven't yet talked about that we probably should, and I keep thinking about. Um, you know, I think about um, teacher education programs in particular, you know, especially the teacher education program that's at Pitt that we need to reimagine. And we are trying to do that work. And when I say reimagine, I'm not saying add a course in. I'm talking like from top to bottom and all the sides in between. Reimagine the whole teacher ed program. We've got to actually think about testing. Like, do we need these standardized tests? What do they measure truly? What do, what, what do these standardized tests measure and how might they be a measure out of a system for so many people? So we got to talk about standardized testing. You know, we got to talk about redesigning teacher education programs. We have got to talk about connecting teacher education with community-based work and not just let's go and visit a site, but let's truly think about a deep integration of what teacher education programs should be doing in relation to the work already happening in community spaces, not just schools, but community spaces. And we've really got to think about that work. 
Um, I want to talk a bit about restorative justice and restorative justice, a part of every single thing that we do and not just, oh, this black kid has a disciplinary problem. No, he probably doesn't. You just need to figure out a way to listen to what this black kid is doing and saying and reaffirm what he or she or they might be doing. Um, but also we got to attend to hiring. Like, who are we trusting mm. with our kids? Who's teaching our kids? But then also on an administrative level, who's leading these systems? Who do we hire and who do we want to ensure that the work will get done the way that we want to get this work done? And, and I think the last thing that I'll say on this is, you know, how do I say um, people have to be willing to work together? People have to be willing to work together. People have to put whatever stuff has happened aside and we need to stop holding on to it. We need to stop having the same conversations about what didn't work 15 years ago or 50 years ago or yesterday. Mm. We got to let that go. And we've got to figure out if it didn't work and if there were people who didn't make it work, guess what? We wake up to a new day and we have our kids and young people and educators who we've got to attend to. And so I don't bring the ego into it. And I think that that's what we have to learn. We've got to figure out how to be youth centered in everything that we do. And, you know, I, I don't do the silos. I don't believe in territorialism. I, be, I don't believe in staying in my lane. I don't know what my lane is. My lane is wherever the kids take me. And that's what we've got to talk about. And so how do we broaden these conversations and think about if it's not working, how do we get it to work better tomorrow and not in five years? Yeah, you're losing a lot of kids in that gap. Oof. Or I feel like I'm in an educational revival right now, y'all. Uh, <laughs> Erica, what do you want to leave us with? I want to chime in and say that we have to, when I say we, society, um, those in power, have to stop pretending that education exists in a vacuum. Um, education is connected to so much. So we can't fix or, you know, address or, you know, promote equity or uplift um, in education if there are still issues of poverty, um, housing instability, of health disparities, of, you know, uh, disparities in the, in the labor force. And so I think we need to start seeing these things as being connected, um, number one. And number two, schools need to stop criminalizing. Uh, you brought up a good point, Valerie, about, yeah, this, this kid has a discipline problem. No, he probably doesn't has, have a discipline problem. It's probably rooted in something else. And oftentimes schools aren't addressing those root causes. We see that in truancy policies um, across the state. So how can we, you know, how can schools um, do more to address uh, the underlying reasons behind certain behaviors or why students aren't coming to school? Um, so again, working um, collectively and more holistically about what's going on with children. Um, and their families, because they're not separate from their families either, um, that are impacting uh, impacting outcomes. So again, education just doesn't exist in a vacuum, and I'm I'm tired of us pretending that it that it does. Dr. Bay, that was definitely your cue, wasn't it? Because I mean, this is what he talks about a lot, Erica. This this these social and political determinants of so many things, not just health, but education and. I'm going to let you have that one, Dr. Bay. Right. And I, I use political determinants because all of these are policy decisions that we, you know, that, that contribute to these. And so this was exactly the kind of uh, impetus that we needed to jumpstart the education conversation in Pittsburgh. So I want to thank all three of you for, you know, when I reached out and you, you all said yes, 
and there was no like, what is this? What you, I, I appreciate that so much that, that you're here and, and giving us this space. So what I'm committing to is we're going to have over the next year a series of conversations around education and various aspects within. If you want to jump back in, I, and I know it's a, it's a big ask to get you all three again on the same time, but you may be asked to join us again for some other elements of it because we brought up so many topics here. And one that I've been talking to some brothers, you know, actually black men who are professors who are working on issues of, you know, they, they, they used to call it second chance learning. They don't call it that anymore. But it's the idea, these, since they, they said, well, a lot of these kids didn't have their first chance when they were in public schools. And now that they're young adults and they're looking for, you know, how do you engage these young men who are 23, 24, like, I need to do something. And so we're looking at education at that age, you know, young adult education. And we want to have a conversation around that. I think that's probably a good one for the next, but we'll, well, I'll talk to my team. We're going to have a whole series. We're going to have a chance to plug back in. You're a part of the network now. And so, you know, you're on call. And I said, I just appreciate that you answered this call this time. Thank you so much. Yeah, we don't want to go back to the norm. So we're going to be calling on you to make sure that we don't. Uh, Desiri, I'm going to let you wrap. Uh, what's what's going on? What's coming up next? I mean, I I think we're all real full right now with how wonderful this went. So again, you know, Dr. Bay has already thanked you, but I, I cannot thank you enough. And obviously, from the thank yous in the feed here, they're like, Absolutely. "Oh my God, we got to do this yes. again. This is amazing." So this is what we wanted. You really touched our our this, listeners. And so this is going to be one of those shows that if you look at the numbers now and look at the numbers in two weeks. This is going to be twenty thousand. 30,000, this is going to blow up because this this yeah. was a rich conversation. And I said, Absolutely. I, I'm, yeah, this will be a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, as, as it was going on, it's like, this is why we have this platform and this is mm -hmm. why it's important to have this platform so we can have conversations like this and speak freely and speak to our community and have, you know, the community and folks. And I saw, you know, I saw um, um, K Chase. Um, who, you know, uh, my son is at Urban Academy and in the comments as well. Um, so it's even, it's dope to see like, you know, educators and, you know, like you said, folks that are running for school board, um, 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 Dr. Dancy, like folks that we've engaged with around these subjects, even in the chat, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, this is why, you know, the importance of a platform like this. Um, you know, we have, you know, more shows coming. Usually we put at the end, you know, we do our This Week in White Supremacy is coming up every uh, Wednesday at six o'clock um, where we keep it a little, you know, we, we, we have fun. Uh, we try to keep it as light as we possibly can. And uh, this Thursday is our Ask a Black Doctor. Um, we're talking about one year um, since COVID um, and kind of, you know, how we're reflecting on on that, as well as some of the issues that you brought up um, at the top of the show. Uh, so we'll be talking to um, uh, three doctors. Um, shout out to the Gateway Medical Society for that. Um, and, I, and at the end of the month, we're doing our next level slam. Um, you know, maybe one day we're not ready to do our, our, our slam in person yet. We're st it's still online. Uh, but uh, Vanessa German is going to be a guest judge for our, for our next level slam. And so that was like a big deal for us just because of how amazing, you know, legendary she is as, as a, um, as an artist, activist and poet. Um, and so just, you know, keep tuning in um, to one hood. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff coming up and great conversations coming up. All right. Fantastic. Next week, we're going to have the Mon Valley in the house for our, our, our show on next 
week on Black Pittsburgh, what Black Pittsburgh needs to know. So we're excited about that. We are serving the region, not just Pittsburgh. And so it, it's it's always great when we get opportunities to bring the regional voices. So until then, thanks a lot again. We appreciate you hanging out with us a little bit later than, than normal. But, um, you know, we'll be hearing for you again soon. All right. We will see you guys next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Peace. Peace. Peace.